Hey, if you're ready to get into Philippians, why don't you clap your hands, make some noise. Man, it's so good to have our pastors in the house. Thank you, pastors, Chris and Jody, for the chance to take our church through Philippians. For those that don't know, I, I know we have at least a couple guests here today and probably some joining us online. Good morning to you. God has just been showing his sovereign hand, his strong healing hand in the lives of our pastors. They've both had major surgeries recently. They're almost through their full recovery time, but it is just awesome to have them back in the building. Amen? Amen. Well, my name is Daniel. I get to serve as one of the pastors here, and today is part five of our Ode to Joy through my favorite prison epistle, Philippians. Last week, we took a close look at the lives of Timothy and Paul and Epaphroditus. We looked at the humility that they walked in. We talked about having both the right attitude and the right actions to effectively shine as bright lights for Jesus in this dark world. We talked about spending our life or pouring it out for Jesus and the gospel and the spiritual good of others. We discovered that we should imitate other-oriented heroes like Timothy and life-risking heroes like Epaphroditus. We found that we should serve as brothers and sisters and co-workers and soldiers in the Lord's army. And we closed our time by asking ourselves, what could we do where God has placed us and how could we live in humility? Well, this morning we're digging into chapter 3. Having addressed some of the personal relationship issues in Philippians 2, Paul now shifts gears again, and he's going to tackle some of the doctrinal problems. In the first 11 verses of chapter 3, he's going to erase and correct some theological errors that he learned were draining the joy from the Philippians. And my hope is that this passage injects some joy and energy and excitement into our faith today as well. Many people have difficult time accepting gifts. Raise your hand if you have a hard time accepting gifts. Sometimes it's hard for me to accept a gift from somebody. <laughs> you can give them all to Christina Carter. She'll take them. But some people are really uncomfortable. Like, I'm unworthy to accept this gift. Similarly, many people have a difficult time accepting God's grace and salvation. There's no doubt that they appreciate God's gift of salvation, but they want to earn it or feel like they need to earn it with some effort on their part. Why? Well, there could be a few reasons. Maybe our effort makes us feel better about ourselves. But if God's salvation is a free gift and available to everyone, which it is, then we don't have anything to hold over anyone else. Still, some think there's a checklist, a, a to-do list to complete to obtain salvation, and that if they complete that list, they think that they're ahead of those that have not. Paul warns the Philippians against this kind of mentality. He basically says, don't get caught up in this false teaching that you have to do certain things for salvation. Joy comes from realizing that Christ has done it all. Amen? So what do you think? This is mostly rhetorical like a number of Paul's questions in Philippians 2, but think about it this morning. Do you think that you have to live a certain way to receive salvation? 
Do you think you have to do certain things in order to qualify for salvation? Would you answer that question one way, but your lifestyle demonstrates something contrary? Do not think that church attendance or joining a serve team or putting a few dollars in the popcorn bucket can earn your salvation. Those are all good things to do. We would encourage you. They are God-honoring things to do. But they do not count as points on a salvation scorecard. Christ has taken care of everything necessary for your salvation. All you have to do is put your faith in him. After that, you can rejoice in the fact that he has done it all, paid it all. And then to pay him back, we're motivated to work out our salvation by living for him. So let's keep that in mind this morning as we dig through chapter 3. Let's also keep in mind that you can do nothing to make Christ love you anymore. And you can do nothing to make Christ love you any less. Amen. Philippians chapter 3, we're going to cover all 21 verses this morning. If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn there with me. We'll also have it up here on the screen, and it is in the app as well, along with some great notes that you'll want to follow along with and fill in. Paul continues his letter to the church at Philippi, chapter 3, verse 1. Whatever happens, my dear brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. I never get tired of telling you these things. And I do it to safeguard your faith. Watch out for those dogs, those people who do evil, those mutilators who say you must be circumcised to be saved. For we who worship by the Spirit of God are the ones who are truly circumcised. We rely on what Christ Jesus has done for us. We put no confidence in human effort, though I could have confidence in my own effort if anyone could. Indeed, if others have reason for confidence in their own efforts, I have even more. I was circumcised when I was eight days old. I am a pure-blooded citizen of Israel and a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew if there ever was one. I was a member of the Pharisees who demand the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church, and as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. I once thought that these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage so that I could gain Christ and become one with him. I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I become righteous through faith in Christ. For God's way of making us right with himself depends on faith. I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I want to suffer with him, sharing in his death, so that one way or another, I will experience the resurrection from the dead. I don't mean to say that I've already achieved these things or that I have already reached perfection, but I press on to possess that perfection for which Christ Jesus first possessed me. No, dear brothers and sisters, I have not achieved it, but I focus on this one thing. Forgetting the past and looking forward to what lies ahead, I press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God, through Christ Jesus, is calling us. Let all who are spiritually mature agree on these things. 
If you disagree on some point, I believe God will make it plain to you. But we must hold on to the progress we have already made. Dear brothers and sisters, pattern your lives after mine and learn from those who follow our example. For I have told you often before, and I say it again with tears in my eyes, that there are many whose conduct shows they are really enemies of the cross of Christ. They are headed for destruction. Their God is their appetite. They brag about shameful things, and they think only about this life here on earth. But we are citizens of heaven, where the Lord Jesus Christ lives, and we are eagerly waiting for him to return as our Savior. He will take our weak, mortal bodies and change them into glorious bodies like his own, using the same power with which he will bring everything under his control. Amen? Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the gift that it is and for what you've been showing us from it. Lord, we ask that you would do the same today, that it would be easy to speak and, and teach your word, that it would be easy to receive from it. Penetrate our hearts with your word today, Lord. Let it take deep root. Let it flourish supernaturally and quickly. Let it bear fruit. Help us to hear and understand and apply your word to our lives this day and every day to follow. In Jesus' name. And everyone said? Amen. Amen. Verses 1 through 3. Beware of false teaching. I love the way this chapter begins. Paul says, whatever happens, rejoice in the Lord. Now remember, Paul had every reason not to be full of joy. He was in prison. He was chained to a Roman guard 24 hours a day. A death sentence could have been carried out at any moment. And it's from this position that he encourages the Philippians, whatever happens, rejoice in the Lord. Man, and this was not just a moment of strength in the life of Paul. This was consistent in the life of Paul. He wrote to another church in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 18, no matter what happens, always be thankful, for this is God's will for you who belong to Christ. I don't know about you, but I have my moments where I have this extra supernatural strength that I feel come on me. I have moments where I have unexpected and unnatural joy in the midst of a difficult situation. But this was Paul's existence. This was his normal routine to rejoice through whatever was happening to him. And, and listen, you're not going to believe this. The word whatever means whatever. Not like whatever, but in all things. All things, no matter what. All means all. That's all that all means. Paul is intentionally keeping the theme of joy at the forefront of this letter. For joy, he discovered, is essential to the life of a Christian. Joy should have permanent residence in the home of a Christian's heart. And Paul makes no apology for repeating. He says he loves saying this again and again. There's power, great power in repetition, amen? There's great power in repetition, amen? There's great, I'm just kidding. Entrepreneur and motivational speaker Zig Ziglar said, repetition is the mother of learning, the father of action, which makes it the architect of accomplishment. My paraphrase of that would be, Repetition 
fosters learning and leads to action that gets results. Sometimes you need to repeat the word of the Lord to yourself. Sometimes you need to print it out and tape it on your bathroom mirror. You need to repeat it out loud so you hear it with your own ears. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of the Lord. Talk to yourself, church. Repeat the word of the Lord to yourself. Repetition is key to acknowledging, accepting, and applying the truth of God's word to our lives. And it's for the good of the Philippians that Paul keeps reminding them to rejoice. And I think as he reminds them to rejoice, he's also reminding himself to rejoice. He keeps hammering this point home because the Bible says it will safeguard their faith. The spiritual discipline of rejoicing, especially in difficult times, protects and shields and builds up a defense for your faith. Amen? The joy of the Lord, meaning the joy that's only found in the Lord, is rooted in a relationship with Jesus, and it's resilient in the midst of whatever happens. That's why we see in Scripture that the joy of the Lord is our strength. And spoiler alert, this is not the last time we're going to see this instruction and encouragement in this letter. Well, Paul had already shared some of the things that interfere with the joy of a Christian. He's already touched on some of the things that try to steal their reason to rejoice. These were difficult circumstances and disagreements and interpersonal friction with other Christians. Now, in chapter 3, he brings up another threat to a Christian's joy, and that's the notion or belief that you must do certain things to earn your salvation. The earliest Christians debated whether male Gentiles, men who were not Jewish, had to follow the Jewish rite of circumcision in order to be saved. And there was a group known as the Judaizers that really got behind this and promoted this false teaching. And they argued that Gentiles could only be eligible for salvation if they performed this initiation ceremony of circumcision. Well, at the first council of Christian believers in Jerusalem, the apostles decided that the Gentiles did not have to follow the laws of Moses in order to be saved. Nonetheless, the Judaizers clung to this false doctrine. And that's not all the Judaizers did. After Paul would go to a new city and start a church and raise up leadership and then go to do the same elsewhere, the Judaizers would sweep in and infiltrate and try to undo everything that Paul had established. And their doctrine was the complete opposite of Paul's. And as a result, many young Christians were confused. This made Paul mad. This made him very upset. Look at the language that he chooses. He calls them, these Judaizers in particular, he calls them dogs. He says, you're evil, you mutilators. He was flipping the script here because Jewish tradition actually referred to Gentiles as dogs. He was calling the Judaizers the dogs. And he said that those who put their trust in God are the ones who are truly circumcised. They've had a circumcision of the heart. They can identify themselves as true children of God. Our effort for salvation is worthless. There's no confidence or trust in it. We trust and rely on Christ alone and what he has already done for us. You've heard this a few times over the last few weeks, but it's still not about us. It's all about God. 
Salvation is not about what we can do. It's all about what Christ has already done. Amen. Verses 4 through 8. Human effort means nothing. We're going to keep hitting this theme for a little bit, so bear with me. Paul turns next to himself. He gives an example of the things that many people would consider an impressive spiritual resume. And then he says he renounces that. He forsakes all of that. He empties himself of any glory that he would receive to follow the pattern of the God that came not to be served, but to serve. So let's look at the credentials that Paul shares with the Philippians. Keep in mind, these were prior to him becoming a Christian. He was circumcised at eight days old. According to the law of Moses, that proved that he was a Jew from the time of his birth. Someone who would convert to Judaism later in life would be circumcised at that point in life. Paul, from eight days old. Both of his parents were Jews, meaning he was a full-blooded, pure-blooded Jewish man. And he could trace his ancestry all the way back to Abraham. He was from the tribe of Benjamin, which produced Israel's first king. That's why that's so significant. He held on to his native tongue, the Hebrew language, which many people had forsaken. He was part of the Pharisees, which, as we read, was the strictest sect of Jews. The Pharisees actually made the Judaizers look like novices, like they were rookies. He was a zealous and passionate persecutor of Christians. And from a legalistic point of view, he was faultless. He was perfect. So this impeccable resume made Paul the who's who of true-blooded Jews. He was the epitome of a good Jew, having been born as a member of God's chosen people and flawlessly keeping God's law, he was covered either way. But when Paul met Jesus on the road to Damascus, he realized that everything he had been living for was taking him in the wrong direction. When that light bulb finally lit up, he counted everything else in his life as worthless. His reputation, his achievements, his pursuits, his possessions, all as filthy rags. And his sole purpose became knowing and serving Jesus. Friend, what are you living for? What direction is it taking you? When you meet Jesus, everything changes. When you meet Jesus, you realize that Jesus plus nothing else still equals everything. Anything we're capable of doing is worthless in comparison to knowing Christ. Now, don't misunderstand Paul. When he says that human efforts are like garbage, they're worthless, he is not suggesting that you live a lazy life, that you are unproductive or unmotivated. Amen? It's pretty clear to see that Paul is all about working hard, about running the race and pressing on and straining to reach the goal. That should be pretty clear by now. So what's the distinction? Again, as far as salvation is concerned, our efforts count for nothing. The things we do do not earn our salvation, but they do demonstrate proof of our salvation. Paul placed Christ above everything else in his life, and his actions showed it. This should be the result of being in relationship with Jesus. Do you, like Paul, place Christ above everything else in your life? If you're not sure, you can ask yourself some questions. How do I spend my time? How do I spend my money? What dominates my thoughts? Where are my priorities? 
What motivates me? James chapter 2, verses 14 through 17 show us the kind of conduct that should be seen in the life of a Christian. What good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith, but don't show it by your actions? Can that kind of faith save anyone? Suppose you see a brother or sister who has no food or clothing, and you say, goodbye, and have a good day, stay warm and eat well. But then you don't give that person any food or clothing. What good does that do? So you see, faith by itself isn't enough. Unless it produces good deeds, it is dead and useless. Summary, faith without works is dead. So if Jesus is at the center of your life, then your life will revolve around him and getting to know him. And everything in your life will be touched by Jesus. And everything in your life will be filtered through Jesus. And you'll spend more time learning about his nature and seeking his will and his purposes for your life from his word. And you, like Paul, will be able to say you've discovered the priceless gain of knowing Christ. Lord, help us with this. Our efforts, or lack of them, won't change God's love for us, but we should be excited to do much for the Lord because we love him. Verses 9 through 11, Christ's work means everything. You could say that verse 9 is Paul's doctrine of salvation. He says, I no longer count on my goodness, my ability to obey God's law. Been there, done that, got the t-shirt. Now, instead... I have faith. I trust in God alone to save me and make me one with him. Oh, to be one with him. The atonement gives us at-one-ment with God. Because of the atonement, I can have at-one-ment with God. Because of Christ's death, my sins are forgiven, and I'm reconciled and restored unto God. Paul's making it abundantly clear that we can do how much to earn our salvation? Nothing to earn our salvation. I know this is repetitive, but again, there's power in repetition. And I believe someone's going to get set free from hearing this this morning. From God's perspective, we're graded on a pass-fail basis. There's only two outcomes, and we all fail. Admit it, as good as you are, or like to think you are, you probably fall far short of Paul's religious resume. I know I do. If he couldn't make the cut, then none of us can. You can't take credit for any part of your salvation. The only part you play is to accept God's offer of salvation. And you can't even do that without the prompting of the Holy Spirit and the conviction that he draws you with. To be one with him, to be saved, gives us the opportunity to know him and experience his mighty power. Know and experience. You might have guessed that those two words leaped off the page at me, similarly to how um, expect and hope did from chapter 1 and how desire and power did in chapter 2. It's one thing to know something or someone. It's another thing to experience something or someone, so let's define them. Let's zoom in a little bit. To know is to be aware through observation, inquiry, or information. To be absolutely sure or certain about something. To recognize. 
It's a powerful thing to know the Lord and know about the Lord. Amen? Experience is an event or occurrence that leaves an impression, an encounter, feel an emotion. It's a powerful thing to experience the Lord and his power. Think about it this way. I could tell you about the best place to get tacos in the city, and I could describe in vivid detail how authentic and fresh they were. I could even show you pictures of them, and that would pique your interest. That would show you where to go to get these tacos. But holding that taco, (laughs) feeling how warm that homemade corn tortilla is, smelling it, Tasting it, little carne asada, little little El Pastor. That would be a much more beneficial, delicious, and memorable experience. Yeah? I could teach you about the presence of God. I could give you a number of scriptural references about the presence of God in worship. You could observe me worshiping on a Sunday morning. And you might gain some knowledge about it, and that would be valuable. That's not wasted. But encountering the presence of God for yourself, feeling the emotion that comes along with that, especially in the act of surrender, is an experience that leaves an unforgettable and unmistakable impression. Church, we get to know Christ and experience his mighty power. And we must be seeking both. We've got to have both. Knowledge without experience is a good foundation, but knowledge with experience leads to transformation. The Lord gave me that after I submitted my notes, so I'll repeat it again. Knowledge without experience is a good foundation, but knowledge with experience leads to transformation. I was reminded of an old song, a sonic flood song titled In the Secret, and I thought some of the lyrics were pretty appropriate. I want to know you. I want to hear your voice. I want to know you more. I want to touch you. I want to see your face. I want to know you more. This speaks to knowing Christ and experiencing him. Another part of this same song, what a coincidence gives us a foretaste of the next verses that we'll cover this morning. I am reaching for the highest goal that I might receive the prize, pressing onward, pushing every hindrance aside out of my way because I want to know you more. As we learn more about Christ and get to know him better and begin to experience and walk in his power, we become more and more aware of our need for him and our dependence upon him grows. The more that Paul knew Christ and experienced his power, the more he rejoiced. As we grow in knowledge of Christ and experience more of his power, we too will rejoice and keep on rejoicing whatever happens. Amen? My prayer is that we will experience the joy of knowing Christ. Now, for the second half of chapter 3, You don't have to be a sports fan or an athlete to enjoy a good sports movie or analogy. You didn't have to be a sports fan to enjoy the Super Bowl this year. It was an exciting game with a dramatic finish, 
not to mention the funny commercials and the nostalgic halftime show. Nothing in Scripture indicates that Paul was an athlete, but perhaps he was a fan. He used sports analogies in Scripture, especially running and boxing, as metaphors for the Christian life. These ne this next passage is one of Paul's more famous athletic references, verses 12 through 14, going for the prize. Paul had just finished explaining that our accomplishments are worthless when it comes to salvation. He's ready to move on to the next step or next steps that we should take during this walk or this journey with Christ. And Paul refers to it as a race, as a goal to strive for. He had first introduced this metaphor in Philippians chapter 2, verse 16. Paul expresses his desire to know Christ. Now he's telling the Philippians that knowing Christ does not happen overnight. Knowing Christ is an ongoing experience in and of itself. Salvation, the actual crossing the line of faith, can happen in an instant. But understanding God won't even happen in a lifetime. But the good news is we'll get eternity to get to know him better. In the meantime, it's a process getting to know him more and being like him. And Paul even recognized that he still fell short, that he still had much to learn about Christ, that he was still a work in progress. He was obviously moving in the right direction. I think that's easy to see, but he still struggled, and he shares these struggles in Romans 7. In an excerpt from Romans 7, 15 through 25, Paul says, I don't understand myself at all, for I really want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do the very thing I hate. When I want to do good, I don't. And when I try not to do wrong, I do it anyway. It seems to be a fact of life that when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. Who will free me from this life dominated by sin? Thank God the answer is in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Raise your hand if you've ever experienced the tension that Paul describes in Romans 7. Oh, that's a bunch of hands. There should be a few more. Same here. Paul acknowledged that he was not perfect. He had not yet attained complete knowledge in Christ. But, listen, he has no greater desire. His single-minded focus was the pursuit of knowing Christ. And because of this single-minded, unwavering focus, his knowledge of Christ grew. His experience walking in the power of Christ grew, and his joy grew. What is your greatest desire? What are you pursuing? What are you focused on? Think about a magnifying glass. Whatever you focus on is magnified, right? It's made larger, it's made more clear, and that makes everything else in the peripheral kind of shrink and, and get blurry. So let's focus on the one thing, like Paul did. Let's focus on the one. Paul, like an athlete in training, shares his workout regimen in verses 12 through 14. So I'm going to share these three sets that were a part of Paul's workout routine, all right? Number one, forget the past. Say forget the past. An athlete won't make very much progress in training if he's always focused on the losses, I've heard analysts describe athletes that they had a short memory. Like you might be 0 for 12 from the field, but you keep hoisting it up 
and then sometimes that guy makes the game-winning shot. You've got to have a short memory. Isaiah 43, 18 and 19a, we've already heard it once today, out of the NIV, forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. I want you to focus on that. Do not dwell on the past. See, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? So while we do not dwell, fixate, focus on the past, we can still learn from the past. We can learn from our losses. That can help us adjust our game moving forward. Christian hip-hop artist Andy Minio has a lyric. It says, win or learn, no losses. I like that so much. A lot of times we go into something thinking this is a win or lose situation. Win or learn, no losses. Too often when we make a mistake, we feel like a failure. You can learn from that mistake. That's not the end of the story. There's still time on the clock. Too often we let our past paralyze us from doing anything else. Paul had a past, an ugly one. He could have easily disqualified himself. He could have focused on his past and been distracted by guilt for the rest of his life. But he knew that if he did that, it would only keep him from doing what God wanted him to do and what God wanted to do through him. Church, don't let your past keep you from purpose. Set one, forget the past. Set number two, look forward to what lies ahead. Paul gives the picture of a runner who is straining, just exerting everything that he's got to move ahead in the race. Where are my runners at? Raise your hand. I know some people even ran the gate yesterday, right? What a coincidence that that just happened yesterday, and we're talking about running a race today. But, like, this is part five of the message, so, like, that wasn't planned out. That wasn't on my radar. But, God, that's off on me. Where are you runners at again? Because I, I used to think y'all were crazy. Where are you? Crazy, crazy. I'm one of you now. I like to go running. That's, huh, feels gross to say almost. <laughs> but over the last year, I've run about 25 Ks. I even ran one 10K. So this section of scripture means more to me now than it did before. I have a little greater understanding and appreciation for it. I know finishing a race and improving my time from race to race is not helped by looking back at the ground I just covered. It's only by looking ahead, making sure that my steps are solid and the path is clear. Pastor Jake and I ran in the pouring rain through the woods and like just up to our knees almost in mud and gunk. Like that was a difficult race. I don't know if I'd do that again. <laughs> I'd run with you again. I just don't know if I'd do it through the woods in the rain. But Paul is keeping his eye on the finish line. And he won't be distracted. He chose to fix his gaze looking through the windshield, not the rearview mirror. Okay, there's a point. There's a reason why one's bigger than the other. That's the one that we should be looking through more often. Sometimes looking in the wrong one at the wrong time can have devastating consequences. So we cannot dwell on the past. We must look ahead. Set one, forget the past. Set two, looking forward to what lies ahead. Set number three, the goal is the prize. Paul is not running half-heartedly. Paul is not running just to get a finisher's medal. If I'm honest, sometimes I'm content just to get a finisher's medal. It's like, I, I did it. I survived. And that's okay 
with a 5K, but that's not acceptable for a follower of Christ running in the race of faith. Paul wants every leg in the race of his life to be better and faster and stronger than the leg before it. He's running to get the prize. And what's the prize of the Christian life? It's heaven. It's knowing Christ and being like him, which we won't fully obtain until we see him face to face in heaven. So keep on running, giving it everything you've got. Run, Christian, run. (laughs) Verses 15 and 16, walking in maturity. These two verses kind of interrupt the flow that Paul had going. He's getting some momentum here in verses 12 through 14 about running this race, going for the prize. Now he kind of calls a timeout to stick with the sports references. He takes a little hop down the bunny trail, and many scholars think that Paul was calling out a particular group in this text. He, of course, was writing to the Philippians, but as we've already discussed, letters circulated, made its way all the way to us, right? So Paul was calling out many scholars think the Judaizers, again, that he had already addressed. He could have possibly been referring to a group known as the Antinomians, This was a group that was against all kind of religious law. There were some people, maybe these groups, that were trying to lead the Philippians astray because Paul wasn't there to stop them. And those people were telling the Philippians that achieving spiritual perfection, being completely like Christ, was possible on earth. Well, Paul had to address this because as we've covered, we've seen the encouragement multiple times that Christ will continue the work that he's begun in your life. He will complete the work that he's done doing in your life. But this work will not be finished until the day of Christ's return. Paul was big on maturity. We know this. His whole life was poured out to present Christians as mature in Christ. But he said it doesn't happen during this life. We're all having that work continued in us until the day of Christ's return. And Paul was writing to those that think differently. And he says that those that did think differently were spiritually naive, immature in their faith. He says that the spiritually mature would be in agreement. And he concludes this section by encouraging the Philippians that God will reveal the truth to them. And they are to keep moving forward in their spiritual growth. They are to apply what he had just laid out in the previous verses to keep on walking with the Lord, to not turn around, but to hold on to the progress they have made. Paul trusts that God will correct their thinking and help them continue to grow in spiritual maturity. He trusted that God would finish what he started for the Philippians, and I believe for you and for me as well. Amen? Verses 17 through 19, walking carefully. Here Paul kind of calls, you know, time in, game back on. He Starts sharing the training manual, the playbook again with the Philippians and their walk with Christ. He suggests that they look to him sort of as their spiritual, personal trainer and pattern their lives after his life. Ignore those others he had just referenced that were trying to divert and distract them from knowing Christ better. If you've ever had a personal trainer or even a workout partner, you know how helpful that is. You know that it's necessary if you really want to see results. A trainer will make you do more than you would try to do on your own. 
A trainer might make you get two or three extra reps on the bench press than you would even attempt by yourself. I don't try to push as much weight at the gym if Pastor Chris isn't there to spot me. Paul tells the Philippians to follow his lead, to do what he does as he walks with Christ. But he still does this from a place of humility. Remember, it wasn't long ago he had just written that his accomplishments are like trash, that he's not yet reached perfection. He's still a work in progress too, but he's further down the path, right? This is discipleship, all right? While he might be a, a spiritual you know, parent, you know, and their spiritual children, he's still not perfect, but he's further along than they are, and we all need someone in our lives like that. We all need a spiritual, personal trainer in our lives, and we too should be that for someone else that is even weaker, more immature in their faith than us, amen? So, so if Paul's still a work in progress, if he's, you know, still not arrived, what makes him a good role model? It's almost like a do as I say, not as I do situation. Parents, you ever been there? But the difference is that Paul's intentions were pure. Paul's motivation was pure. His heart was pure. And that's what he's asking the Philippians to copy, the intentions and motivations behind his walk with Christ. And this is, this is pulling at Paul's heartstrings. He's crying in Scripture over his concern for them. He doesn't want them to fall away, to be led astray by the enemies of the cross, as he calls them. And he describes the enemies of the cross, what they look like, how they live. He said they only follow their natural desires and instincts. They only think about this life on earth. Their minds were set on the here and now. They had no eternal perspective. Well, we know that our natural desires and instincts can be deceiving. Amen? We know that our life here on earth and what we see is only temporary. Paul knew that too, and he, he wanted so badly for the Philippians to realize that as well. And I don't know this for sure, but I think that perhaps the enemies of the cross made fun of Paul, thinking he was so heavenly-minded that he couldn't have any fun. And I imagine Paul would counter that by telling them that they were so earthly-minded that they had no real connection with Jesus. I remember being teased by enemies of the cross. I remember being called church boy. In middle school, kids thought I was a goody-goody, thought I didn't know how to have any fun. I wouldn't go to the parties I was invited to, so eventually I stopped even getting invited to those parties. And this was not that I thought I was so holy. This was because although my spirit was willing, my flesh was weak. And I knew that if I put myself in those tempting situations, I would have caved and participated in all the nonsense that they were participating in. But I was trying my best to follow Jesus and stay away from that. That was more important to me than fitting in and compromising my values and damaging my witness. We must walk carefully with the Lord because the enemy is out there and enemies of the cross are out there and they are poised, ready to strike you and challenge your faith. We've got to be walking carefully. And finally, verses 20 and 21, keeping in mind where the walk will end. Christians live on earth but have citizenship in heaven. 
If you are in Christ, then you have dual citizenship. You are in this world. You are not of this world. And this happens at the moment of salvation. For this reason, we are to be heavenly-minded. Paul used the term citizenship just like he did earlier in this letter because he knew it had special meaning to the Philippians. They were Roman citizens just like he was. They understood what came along with that. So they were able to understand that citizenship in heaven had certain privileges and expectations too. This is how they were instructed to live. This is how we are instructed to live, heavenly-minded. And finally, transformation awaits those that are united with Christ. You will have a new spiritual body someday and spend eternity with Christ in heaven. If the Philippians weren't motivated yet by this letter, that would certainly help do the trick. Keeping in mind their final destination would give them hope. And that should give us hope too. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2 Yes, dear friends, we are already God's children, and we can't even imagine what we will be like when Christ returns. But we do know that when he comes, we will be like him, for we will see him as he really is. Hmm. As citizens of heaven, we will at last get to see Christ, know him fully, and enjoy his presence and fellowship for eternity. Our Christian walk, this race of faith, will come to an end at the feet of Jesus. That's the hope that we have. That's the promise that we have. But we're not there yet. We're still running the race. Keep running. You might be in the middle of a really tough stretch right now. The track might feel slippery. It might seem as if there's hurdle after hurdle on the leg you are running. But the race is not over. Keep running. If you are a child of God, a citizen of heaven, then you know who's at the finish line cheering you on. You know your future is secure. You know this world is not your home, and you know God will bring everything under his control. So keep on running. And as we keep on running, church, we forget the past, we look ahead, we reach for the prize, and let us remember the words where we began this morning, whatever happens... My dear brother and sister, rejoice in the Lord. If you're tired, rejoice in the Lord. If you're thirsty, rejoice in the Lord. If you're facing fierce opposition, rejoice in the Lord. If you've tripped and fallen, get up and rejoice in the Lord. If you feel like you've gone as far as you can go in your own strength, tap into the mighty power of God and rejoice in the Lord. Amen? Church, you're not running in vain. I'm telling you that help is on the way. Keep your eyes fixed on the finish line and rejoice in the Lord. Stand to your feet. Let's lift up the powerful name of Jesus a little more.